Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament Lectionary Podcast. I'm Tim McNinch, Assistant Professor of Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis. And I'm Rosie Candle, a postdoctoral fellow teaching Hebrew Bible at Columbia Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. Rachel Wren and Paul Essa are off this week. And the first reading for September 17, 2023, in the semi-continuous track is <clears throat> Exodus 14, verses 10 through 31, or hmm, Exodus 15, 1b to 11 and 20 to 21. That is a mouthful, but we're dealing here with the crossing of the Reed Sea, either in prose, chapter 14, or in poetry, chapter 15. Is that right, Tim? Exactly. It's possible that the poem or song there in Exodus 15 contains the oldest text in the whole Hebrew Bible. I mean, there's no way to know for sure, but some of the Hebrew in it has really archaic forms, and its poetic format probably goes back to a time when such events were preserved via oral tradition before being included in emergent written documents. So why do you think this story gets doubled up in this way? narrative, and then song in these consecutive chapters, Exodus 14 and 15. Mm -hmm. It seems most likely that the, the author of the narrative of the Exodus probably had this song as a source text, whether oral or written, and then decided to both retell it in their story and then also include the source uh, in the text as Moses's and Miriam's song. Hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you've said it's Moses and Miriam. Yeah, yeah. In, hmm. in, in 15.1, the song is attributed to Moses, but then down in verses 20 to 21 in chapter 15, it's attributed to Miriam and all the women. Well, well, that is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, especially for those of us who are looking for feminist on-ramps into this male-dominated story. All right, so before we get too far into our conversation, which of these options, chapter 14 or 15, do you recommend for preachers to pick up? Hmm. You know, I, I don't really have much of a preference on this. Both of these, I think, get to the core features of the story. I should note, though, that the song actually goes beyond the sea crossing and celebrates in poetry the whole Exodus experience, from the escape from Egypt through the sea to the trek through the wilderness guided by God and right into the promised land and even to the quote-unquote hill of God's inheritance, speaking most likely of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So, so even though the poem is set here uh, at, the, at the shore of the sea as an Israelite celebration and song of God's deliverance across that barrier, the, the poem itself is a later theological retrospective on the whole voyage from foreign bondage to free worship in Judahite Jerusalem, which is, which is kind of an interesting uh, tidbit there. Hmm. That is inter interesting and a good reminder that this is not a simple historical report of what happened and what was said in that moment. It is, in fact, a theological reimagining of a pivotal experience for this people filtered then through the traditions and theologies of much, much later authors. Rosie, are you saying that the crossing of the sea isn't historical? LOL, folks. <laughs> that is exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> so so I'll, I'll take the heat on this one. Mm -hmm. so, so preachers should know that modern archaeology, along with careful study of, of the biblical text as well, 
makes it very probable that the Exodus, uh, at least as described in the book of Exodus, was not an event that happened in history, at least not on the scale of its description here. If there was a group who escaped Egyptian control and became part of emergent Israel, it was probably a smaller subgroup of the people. Uh, perhaps it's theorized the Levites or some, some group like them. Most of the people who would become Israel appear to have been indigenous Canaanites who, through shifting historical circumstances at the end of the Bronze Age, began to find a new social identity as a separate people, Israel. And the, the origin stories that we read in Scripture, including this dramatic escape from Egypt in our lectionary text this week, are a kind of um, adopted history, a creative telling of the past that is less about reporting past events and more about highlighting meaningful realities in the present, in the author's present. So for the authors of this story and the song, living many, many generations after the events recounted here, telling this narrative was a way to emphasize their sense of being a people called out by God rescued from dire circumstances, against overwhelming odds, and even natural obstacles like an impossible, impassable sea. Impossible, impassable sea. Tim, that's already preaching. (laughs) (laughs) Right. In fact, this idea of a God who brings the people through the obstacle of the sea gets recycled over and over in the biblical literature, including many of the Psalms. So I think actually this, this is a pretty straightforward preaching angle. To, to ask your congregation, what's the sea you're up against? What seems impossible and impassable? What, what dangers stand in the way of the flourishing of our communities? This story claims that God is able to make a way where there is no way and asks us to reach out, to call out, to trust in God's provision. Well, that sounds pretty good. So no hidden meanings or provocative insights from the Hebrew? <laughs> <laughs> I actually think this one is pretty easy to preach from just a simple, straightforward reading of the story. Well, folks, you're here to hear first. That's pretty good. Uh, (laughs) Any pitfalls then? Or is this one going to be smooth sailing for our preachers? Well, there (laughs) there are a couple potential preaching pitfalls that I'd highlight for our listeners. First, we've already talked about the, uh, the unlikelihood that this story is describing a historical occurrence, at least in its details. And I think you'll want to use care in how you frame that reality in a sermon. On the one hand, I'd caution against framing it too explicitly as a historical report, using language that just assumes that this happened exactly as as it's described in the text. The danger there is that you, you build a kind of house of cards for your congregation, and as soon as they learn that historical scholarship is suspicious of the historicity of all this, then, then the whole um, foundation of your theological point just crumbles. On the other hand, I would caution against using your sermon to sort of rail against the historicity of this crossing, as if it's pure fiction or fable, and you know we moderns know better, and wouldn't we be idiots to believe that something like this ever happened? That tack also undermines the impact of the text, especially if people get the sense that you're saying that God doesn't actually have control over natural phenomena like the sea. Along those lines, it doesn't help much, in my opinion, to try to explain this miracle away by appealing to some sort of natural uh, you know, explanation, like that the, like the wind that the story describes as blowing all night was just sort of a weather phenomenon that happened to make this little crossing point shallow enough for Israel to, to cross through the mud. 
I think that misses the point. The The same goes for highlighting that the text doesn't actually name the Red Sea, which is sort of traditional, you know, the crossing of the Red Sea, but rather the Sea of Reeds, Yamsuf, which is an entirely different body of water, much easier to cross. True enough. But even Yam Suf, which the story actually names, required miraculous intervention to cross in the story. It's a miracle either way. So all of that long-winded stuff, just to say, what I'm getting at is that preachers will want to emphasize that even if this miracle is a creative retelling of a tradition, the theological claim it's making is that God truly is powerful enough to control the sea and is therefore powerful enough to intervene on our behalf in our own desperate need for help, or for justice, for courage, for survival. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's um, it's quite a needle to thread there that you've kind of described. But I, I like how you've kind of brought down to the end there that there the theological value of singing the song together, remembering this together, is to find courage for survival. Right. So to recognize that God still has this miraculous power, the ability to carry us over impossible, impassable seas. Mm. Um, so I, th- I think it's, it's helpful. Um, it's helpful there to kind of show how to be able to thread that needle. Well, mm. is, is there, um, anything else that you want to lift up for listeners? Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I also want to mention again, uh, something I mentioned last time I was up, which is the the problem of making the Egyptians here a trope for the bad guys, uh, a personification of evil. This story and song engage in a bit of schadenfreude, you know, gloating over your enemy's trauma. And uh, is that something we really want to emulate and encourage in our congregations? No, very tempting. But yeah, that's a really good point to remind <laughs> us again that that. Uh, to be careful about labeling bad guys in the story. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, we're not the only ones to raise this. The, the awful fate of the Egyptians in this story is something that's troubled readers even from ancient times. There's, there are even a couple, uh, a few reflections on this in the Jewish Talmud, which preserves traditions that are almost 2,000 years old. Uh, one mention of this moment comes, uh, you might be interested in this, Rosie, in the context mm. of a, a rabbinical commentary on the story of Esther which is another biblical story with sort of problematic celebration of the mass deaths <laughs> of Israel's enemies. Uh, in this case, the rabbis raise the question, does God rejoice in the death of the wicked? And pointing us to this story in Exodus 14, they imagine sort of behind the scenes, uh, and here's the quote, ministering angels sought to utter a song, but the Holy One, blessed be, said, the work of my hands is drowning in the sea, and you would utter a song? And if, if uh, listeners are curious, this is found, among other places, in the Babylonian Talmud and Tractate Megillah 10b. Uh, in other words, the ancient rabbis here are asking us to remember, as we read this story, that the Egyptians are also the work of God's hands bearers of the divine image. And their downfall in the story, though it's a relief to the Israelites, is nevertheless horribly tragic and worth lamenting. I think preachers should keep that in mind so that we don't tacitly caricature the Egyptians in our preaching. After all, it bears repeating that Egyptians are with us today, a people who celebrate the the ancient uh, pharaonic dynasties as as their great heritage. And and we should seek to honor and dignify these divine image-bearing neighbors 
not use them as a kind of metaphorical pawn in our preaching. So use care in your description of the Egyptians. I'm so glad you highlighted that uh, verse from the Megillah too, that that is beautiful to me to think of God both on the side of the Israelites and on the side of the Egyptians, lamenting mm-hmm. and celebrating at the same time. And I, I think also at the closer at hand, at the end of the book of Jonah, the response to Jonah's um, question, which is, should I not care yeah. for all these animals and humans in, in the city of Nineveh? Like, and that's the ending question of Jonah, that that's, of course, God cares. Like yeah, that. God's care for the arch enemies. Yeah, yeah. Right. So thank you so much for bringing that up to our reflection. And you've given us a few straightforward preaching angles about God's ability to overcome seemingly impossible obstacles, as well as some cautions about the historicity of the events in the story and the way it portrays our enemies. So uh, thanks, Tim. Of course, it was fun to think about. All right, friends, that will bring us to the end of this week's episode. First Reading is produced by me and Tim, along with Dr. Rachel Wren and Paul Assaf. You can find more info and all of our back episodes at our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. And thank you to those of you who are supporting the pod with your financial contributions. If you'd like to donate to help keep this going, you can follow the link on our website. It also makes a huge difference when you recommend us to your friends, especially those preachers in your life. If you take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that helps the algorithm. So please do that, but it's those personal recommendations that help build our listening community. Drop us a line at firstreadingpodcast at gmail.com or find us in the comments on our Facebook page. Until next time, I'm Rosie Candethel. And I'm Tim McNinch. Thanks for listening and have a great week.